0: Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series, now the world's largest weekly podcast dedicated to the topic of leadership, where each week we try to curate a different guest, sometimes inside the Franklin Covey Thought Leadership family and many times outside to our friends and new researchers, scientists, practitioners, CEOs, best-selling authors, PhDs that have an interesting point of view have mastered a skill that as a formal leader or even informal leader, parent, friend, colleague, neighbor, collaborator that can help you to build your capability and uh, become a more influential leader. Today, we have the multi-talented Maria Konakova who's written many books, including Mastermind and Confidence. She has a PhD from Columbia. She is um, a wildly published columnist and author of The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and her most current book, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and When is Going to captivate you today. Maria, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. Hey, delighted you're here. I have to tell you, the book is mainly about the lessons learned as you became a master under under description on the sport poker, the game of poker, which I knew nothing about prior to reading your book. It was absolutely captivating. Everyone, if you want a great summer read, you have got to pick up Maria's most current book, The Biggest Bluff. Maria, Do me the favor of reorienting yourself to our audience of listeners and viewers. Talk a bit about your history. What led you to write this particular book? What are the big lessons you learned while writing it? And we'll spend maybe 30 minutes talking about how the lessons apply to our listeners and viewers.
1: Sounds good. Well, Scott, like you. I uh, didn't know anything about poker prior to embarking on this project. In fact, the stuff I knew probably hurt me more than it helped mm. because I was under several misconceptions including the fact that I had no idea how many cards were in a deck. For some reason I was positive there were 54. For listeners there are not 54 cards in a deck. That is wrong. Um, so so I really started at less than zero and I had no interest in poker, no interest in games. I didn't even have a deck of cards when I was growing up. Um, I'm from a household where we read books as a family. That's kind of what we did on the weekends and in the evenings to pass the time. I didn't have a TV either, so not not lots of external entertainments in the Konnikova family. And so I grew up as a writer and a psychologist. Um, and i had a phd in psychology from columbia where i studied decision making and all of my books prior to the biggest bluff had something to do with different topics in psychology that i was interested in so my first book mastermind was about sherlock holmes but it was really about mindfulness and presence and active awareness and how to be more like sherlock holmes how to think in more mindful ways. And from there, you know, I went from the detective side to the criminal side. And my second book, The Confidence Game, was about con artists and the lives they ruin and how they are able to do what they do and what it is about us as human beings that makes us vulnerable to the wiles of con artists. And that book had just come out and it was doing well. Everything was going well. Um, You know, I was writing for The New Yorker. Life was good. Um and then I went through A rough stretch where basically life wasn't so good anymore. Um, I got incredibly sick with an autoimmune condition that nobody could diagnose. But basically I spent months and months locked in the house because my skin was allergic to everything. And I was on these just massive doses of steroids to try to get the hives down and it wasn't working. Um, Around the same time, my grandmother died in just a freak accident. She slipped in the middle of the night and hit her head and didn't wake up wasn't sick at all, lived by herself, you know, very, no one, no one saw that coming. My husband lost his job, my mom lost her job, just one thing after another, after another. And it made me realize, you know, how important luck is in everything we do, that, you know, you need to be skilled, you need to do well, you need to work hard, but that's necessary, but not sufficient. You also have to get incredibly lucky. And that's not up to you. That's just, the universe, that's variance, that's, you know, is is the universe with you or not? And I wanted to write about that. I wanted to explore it further. I wanted to try to figure out, you know, how do we learn to tell the difference between skill and chance, between the things we can control and the things we can't, and how do we learn to maximize our skill and to rebound, to to do well, even when chance doesn't go in, in our way. And that's kind of how I eventually came to poker because I was reading this book called The Theory of Games and Economic Behavior by John von Neumann. And I learned that game theory, which is kind of one of the central theories of economics of the 20th century, was born out of poker. John von Neumann was one of the brilliant polymaths of the 20th century, father of game theory father of the computer um, father of the hydrogen bomb brilliant mind was obsessed with poker and thought that if you could solve this game you would have the answer to strategic decision making in life and he drew a parallel between the world of poker and the world of life because he said that life like poker is a game of incomplete information. There are knowns and unknowns, there are things that I know, there are things that you know, there are things we both know. And our goal in both is to make the best decision possible with the information we have, knowing that it's going to be probabilistic, that there's no such thing as certainty. And the way he wrote about it really appealed to me. And I thought, what is this poker thing? You know, let me let me explore it, let me think about it. And something clicked, I just thought, this is my book. Why don't I learn to play poker? Get someone really, really smart to teach me. I'm a big believer in having coaches and mentors for everything um, and see what happens and use that journey as a way of exploring this bigger question of skill versus chance of what we control and what we don't control and use poker as a metaphor for life. And that was the birth of the biggest bluff.
0: I could listen to you and not ask a single question this entire interview because it's captivating to hear your story. I mean, you are a a well-known author, educator, and uh, columnist. Your writing style is breezy and funny on serious topics of gravity. You wrote a 300-page book about understanding how... The art and science of poker applies to life. Life has leaders, decision makers, paying attention, being mindful, understanding data from gut instinct, all these things that leaders every day of the week, parents struggle with. Uh, Talk a bit about the turning point in your mentor, Eric. Talk a bit about meeting him and the impact he had on you and his focus. I think he wrote in the book, his refusal to plateau. Honestly, (laughs) it was probably the best line in the book because you know, as an entrepreneur and a father and a host and a business leader, I want to make sure I never plateau, Uh, expand on that.
1: Yeah, I met Eric Seidel back when, you know, I was a total poker newbie. I mean, he's the one who corrected my knowledge of, uh, of cards in the deck. And I had found him by just doing some, you know, down and dirty research on the Google and seeing, you know, who is the best poker player in the world and very sophisticated and psychologically savvy search strings like that. Um, So I, you know, his name kept coming up as someone who was not only kind of at the top of um, the charts, the earnings charts, career success, but also someone who had longevity. I mean, here was a player who'd been winning major events since the 80s. And there was no one else like that. Someone who was competitive in the 80s is not competitive today for the most part. Poker tends to be a young person's game. And here was someone who was beating it and beating the young guys and doing so year after year after year at the heart at the highest levels. And so I reached out to him and, you know, just did my homework as best I could and said, you know, hi, I'm a writer for the New Yorker. I'm working on this new project. I'd love to talk to you about it. And it just so happened that he was in New York, so we were able to meet in person. And I have to tell you, I prepared for that meeting more than I've probably prepared for anything in years, since my probably since my dissertation defense when I was in grad school, because I really wanted to make a good impression. I wanted him to take me on as a student and I knew it was going to be a big ask because he's a very private person. And I mean, it's a huge imposition to say, hey, I don't know anything. Want to teach me? How about I tag along with you for a year? Doesn't that sound like a great idea for how to live your life? So I wanted to make it as painless and as valuable a proposition as I possibly could. And I, I suggest it to anyone who asks me about, you know, how do you find a mentor to try to figure out how do you craft a relationship where you're not just taking, where you're also giving, where you figure out what can I give to this person? How can I make it worth their while? And so I had come prepared with printouts of all the psych studies I could find on poker and on kind of you know, game theory and kind of the things that I thought might be relevant to what he was doing. And I think he, you know, I, I got lucky that he agreed, but I think he saw value in the project um, for just a proof of concept for him as well. You know, he sees himself as a dinosaur. He's not, we'll get to the second part of your question, kind of his Refusal to plateau. So he's, if he's a dinosaur, he's like the rapidly evolving dinosaur who keeps <laughs> changing and morphing into uh, into what's the most adaptive species at the at the time. But he saw that this was a proof of concept because here I was. I wasn't a poker player coming to him and saying, "Hey, make me better. You know, give me some poker lessons." I was a blank slate literally I didn't know anything except I had a background in psychology in decision making in self-control kind of emotional control the types of things that he said would be very important in poker and so if he could teach me from zero to actually make good decisions and be a good player a thinking player. um, If you if you notice I didn't say a successful player because that is up in the air in the sense of if you measure success by money, you might actually find that someone who's the thoughtful player is not successful because as He taught me very early on, you can't measure success by outcome. You have to measure it by process. And poker is a long term game. You will be successful in a monetary way in the long term. But I came to him saying, you know, I want to do this for a year. And so there was no guarantee of of that outcome. But he wanted to see, you know, how far can he take me? And if he can take me far enough, that would be proof that his way of thinking, the psychological approach, the more human approach was still valid, that it was still a major force, which is quite the thing to prove because these days in every single field, not just poker, it's the quants who are leading the way forward. It's all about the math. It's all about the statistics and people forget the theory, the human side of it, of you know, the, the intangibles, the psychology. And so to him, that was really important. And I also think that it was a challenge in not plateauing, because one of the things I've learned about Eric is he is constantly questioning and challenging himself to learn more and be more. And he every single day wakes up and says, am I still competitive? Can I still do this? Can I still learn? Can I still compete with the best? And One of the best ways to stay current and to make sure you keep learning is by teaching. Um, That goes back to my first ever book, Mastermind about Sherlock Holmes and Watson, where I argued that Sherlock Holmes became a much better detective because he had Dr. Watson. He had someone next to him to whom he had to constantly explain his thought process, who constantly challenged him and forced him to be a more thoughtful version of himself.
0: Maria, the book is absolutely riveting, it's captivating. I encourage everybody to pick up a copy and just read the story. A, because you're a great writer, but B, the lessons that you've learned and you teach, they're immediately applicable as leaders. You talk about the power of discernment, using good judgment, knowing when you're kind of fighting chance. Some of the lines in here, uh, I'm going to ask you in a moment to describe the Columbia experience experiment you had with thousands of students around their investing. Your outcome, your conclusion was that people failed to see the wor- what the world was telling them when the message wasn't the one they wanted to hear. The cruel truth was as humans we often think ourselves in firm control when we're really playing by the rules of chance. Will you take a moment, moment and recreate the experience the experiment you did at Columbia and what the lessons are that guide all of our lives?
1: Absolutely. So this was my graduate work where I conceived of a, a study to try to figure out, you know, how do people make decisions in risky uncertain environments and the best environment to look at that was the stock market especially because it had been inspired by the 08 crash and um, my advisor Walter Mischel who people um, listeners might know as the marshmallow guy um, the psychologist who created the marshmallow studies you know you Take a three or four year old, put a marshmallow in front of them, ask them to wait um, until you come back into the room, and then they can have more marshmallows. And then you wait and see how long does the kid wait or does the kid eat the marshmallow right away. And it turns out that. The longer a child is able to wait um, the better they do in life the more successful they are in all sorts of measures um, this is called delay of gratification and i'm actually saying this for a reason because we were working with a lot of new students but also with the original marshmallow data um, who those those students are still alive and well and still being followed and with people who are actual professionals who are work in hedge funds who are portfolio managers um, who work in finance And we wanted to see, you know, does high self-control, do people who are normally able to wait for that second marshmallow, who are really good at being in control, who are successful, who are smart, who are good in school, good at their jobs, good at their lives, would they succeed better on this stock market task where we had them pick stocks and bonds, they had to make a portfolio, and then we would change the rules on them. So basically, you know, stocks that used to be good ended up being bad and vice versa. And we just wanted to see how quickly do people learn? How well do they take that data? Do they make the changes when they should be making them? And we were expecting that, yeah, self-control would be great, um, that it would actually help people make smarter decisions. And that was not the case. We actually found that the most successful, smartest people, the ones who had the highest self-control were the most prone to something called the illusion of control. So they still thought that they were in control even when they weren't. Even when they were in an environment where their actions were not actually making much of a difference, where there was a lot of uncertainty, they overestimated their skill. They overestimated their ability to control the environment. And when they started losing money, instead of saying, huh, fascinating. Did something change? Should I change my strategy? They say, oh, no, no, that's just noise. I know what I'm doing. Whereas the people who weren't as successful, you know, who'd who didn't quite know what they were doing, they saw, oh, oops, you know, something just changed. I'm starting to lose money. This doesn't look the same, better adjust. And they ended up making more money overall. And to us, this was just such a fascinating thing to discover. It was kind of this Achilles heel of being successful and being good um, and being in control in day-to-day life. When you, when we yank that control away from you, when we put you in an environment where there's a lot of stuff going on, where there's ambiguity, where there's uncertainty, you're going to be overconfident. And that can pose a problem for your decision-making, for your ability to take feedback, for your ability to make optimal decisions.
0: Marie, I think it's fair to say you are an, an expert in understanding poker. You became a poker champion. You earned actually a fair amount of money in that year and you may not be a world champion, but you become an expert in poker. Would you take us on a bit of a ride? Would you give us a short primer on poker? I, I, I didn't know anything about poker prior to reading your book. I knew, you know, I'd heard of it, knew it was a game in Las Vegas that was for smart people and that I was not gonna waste any money on that. But would you give us a quick understanding of poker and then would you maybe riff on the biggest lessons you learned from your expertise about poker that can apply in all of our lives?
1: Absolutely. So I ended up um, playing a very specific type of poker, which is called No Limit Texas Hold'em. There are lots of different variants, but I'll be talking specifically about that. And not only that, I decided to pursue tournament poker. So when people think of poker, normally they think of cash games. So you have chips and they're worth a certain amount of money and you play and at any given time you can take your chips and walk away cash out and you make whatever you make or you lose whatever you lose tournament poker which is what i play the chips have no monetary value so you buy in you pay a certain amount of money and then everyone gets the same number of chips and your chips are only worth something relative to everyone else's so the goal is to get all the chips and in a tournament roughly 10 to 15 percent depending on the tournament um, of players are going to get paid so you'll get your buy-in back and then some um, and then everyone else is going to go home with zero so you will have just lost your buy-in and that's it and you can't get up you can't leave you can't just suddenly decide you don't want to play anymore and cash out you have to keep going um, until you bust or you win whichever whichever the case may be usually you bust sorry to say um but sometimes you win and those moments are great and the reason i i make that distinction is that it's a, a tournament poker is a different game and that's a game that's much more akin to a lot of situations that we find ourselves in in real life because you know, in real life you can't just get up and quit randomly you have to just work through it and power on and keep going. And so tournament poker to me seemed like a much more appropriate metaphor, a much more appropriate tool when you're looking at real life decision making. And in No Limit Hold'em specifically, it's a game that I chose because of the balance of known information and unknown information, private information, so what I know, and public information, what everyone knows. So there are two cards that everyone gets. Those are dealt face down, so only the player who's dealt those cards know what they are these are called the whole cards that's your private information and one of the key lessons and a lesson that i kind of keep learning over and over and over even though it seems so ridiculously simple is nobody knows your cards except for you all they know is how you play them What you choose to show them, the actions you choose to take, how you choose to act, but they don't know what's in your hand. To me, that's just such a powerful lesson for business, for negotiation, for relationships, for for everything in life. It's so easy to think, oh, man, they know I have crappy cards or I have amazing cards. yay. But you realize that the best players are the ones who are able to play any cards and who are able to represent things in a believable way. So how do you represent things? How do you actually play? Well, you have a number of choices at any given point in time. So you can fold. That's the easiest thing. You decide you don't want to play and you just hand back your cards. You can call, which means you make the minimum bet. So in poker, there are these things called blinds, which are blind bets so that two people and any given round are forced to put in a blind bet before they even get any cards at all just to make sure that there's some action otherwise everyone could just fold and that wouldn't be much fun would it so there are the blind bets and you can call the blind bet or you can raise and raising can mean i have a really really great hand or it can mean i think you guys all suck so i'm going to take advantage of you or it can mean you look at me and you think i'm a girl so you think i can't bluff so i'm going to bluff can mean lots of different things. And that's the beauty of the game because like life, every action can be taken for a lot of different reasons. And your job isn't just to do that yourself, but to look at everyone else and to try to figure out why are they doing what they're doing? And then common cards come out. So the flop is the first three cards that are dealt face up and once again you go around in a circle and you have the exact same options you can call you can fold you can check to see what someone else is doing you can raise and then another card comes out and that's called the turn and you go through the same thing and then the final card comes out that's called the river you go through the same thing and you can win in a few ways either you're just the last person standing you got everyone else to fold along the way either because of your aggressive betting your aggressive raising whatever it is you got everyone else to just put their cards in the muck and you win by default you never even have to show your hand the other way of winning is to get to what's called showdown so there's still multiple people left and you all turn your cards face up and the best hand wins your goal is to never get to showdown your goal is to actually win without having to show your cards, whether you have the best hand or the worst hand. And it turns out when you look at actually the big data studies, the statistics of online poker, it turns out that the best hand wins less than 20% of the time, usually it's the best player, and most cards don't ever make it to showdown. So that's how much of a skill game it is. I can get you to fold a better hand before we even make it to the end. And that's my skill edge. That's another incredibly important lesson, not just in poker, but in life, that if you can Make good decisions. If you can read the situation correctly, then you don't actually have to have the best of it. You can just negotiate your way through almost any situation and end up as the winner. So, how do you do all of this? I mean, I think the number one lesson—it's kind of the the foundation and the first thing that um, Eric Seidel told me when I asked him. You know, so. What's the one thing I need to know to be good at poker? Still can't believe I asked him that. Um, It's very embarrassing, but I did. And he, he said something that was very deceptively simple, but that I think is actually the foundation of good decisions and being successful, whether it's in a poker hand or in a life situation, and that's pay attention. Actually be present, be aware. Pay attention to what other players are doing. Pay attention to yourself. What are you doing? How are you acting? How are you feeling? What emotions are you feeling? Is there anything that's getting in the way of solid decision-making? Are there any emotions that are clouding your judgment? Are you hungry? Are you tired? Are you angry? Are you sad? All of these things are things that you need to pay attention to because they're going to affect your decision calculus. But just as important is paying attention to every other person at the table, even when you're not playing yourself, even when you're not involved in a hand. So many people just get tired because paying attention is hard. It's actually really hard work. And so they go on their phone, they you know, they start scrolling through Twitter or social media. They start looking at the sports game on the monitor that's playing over there. They stop paying attention because, oh, well, I'm not in this hand, so why do I care? Why do I need to make notes? Well, the truly successful players are the ones who are constantly there and present and observing and taking notes. Because in poker and in life, information is power. You want to gather as much information as possible while revealing the the least you possibly can yourself. And the only way to do that is to be present, to be attentive and to be fully immersed in whatever experience you're undertaking at the moment, whether it's playing poker or something totally different in a business context or a personal context. To me, that's, I think, the most powerful lesson that I've taken from the game of poker and applied to everyday life.
0: I don't know that I can play poker, but I do understand it more after having read your book and uh, that description. I think one of the big lessons that you also taught in the book through your own research as a psychologist, of course, your education at Harvard before that, and all of your writings and experiences, how many of us act on our intuition and our gut instincts versus what the data and the science shows us. Speak to the leaders, the business leaders, by the millions that are watching and listening this podcast. When do we know, what signs, triggers do we know when our instinct and our gut might need to trump the data? And also what signs should we show when we should discard that and actually have the data prove out right and follow that instead. Any advice you give us there?
1: Yeah, we suck at knowing when our intuitions are accurate and when they're not. So if you look at all of the psych studies, it shows that people on average have correct and incorrect intuitions pretty evenly split. So, you know, 50-50, any given time, our intuition is gonna be right or wrong. And when you ask people to correctly name which intuitions are right and which are wrong, they can't. They're no better than chance. And every intuition feels equally strong and equally powerful, even when it's completely wrong. So I always say, actually, data always trumps intuition, because intuition is just you being lazy. It's you being like, oh, well, I have a gut feeling. I don't want to do the hard work because my gut is right. No. So I actually most of the time say, screw intuition, do not follow it, follow where the data goes. There's one exception. And that exception is when intuition isn't actually intuition, when it's expertise that's masquerading as intuition. When you are such an expert in a domain where you have tens of thousands of hours of experience, where this is your life, this is what you've been doing, this is what you've been studying, you acquire a lot of different domain knowledge not all of which might be consciously accessible to you because you don't always take the time to sit down and analyze it in that case something that you feel like a gut instinct isn't a gut instinct that's actually expertise deep knowledge it's thousands and thousands of hours of experience and feedback calibrated experience so when eric seidel my coach tells me you know i just have a feeling this guy is strong What I have to do is figure out, okay, this guy's been playing poker every single day of his life for hours and hours and hours. He's got more experience than anyone else. Um, What is he seeing? This isn't a gut feeling. There's actually something that he's seeing. There's a pattern that his mind has made, has recognized over time, but he's just never taken the time to figure out to, to... actually interpret it to figure out what does this mean. And so my job as a student is to try to figure out, okay, Eric, what are you looking at? What are you seeing? Is that a gesture? Is it betting patterns? What is it? Because that's not intuition, that's deep expertise, just something that he's never really explained to anyone. In that case, trust your gut. And so your question to yourself should always be, is there a reason why my intuition should be right? Am I an absolute expert in this? The answer is usually no. And the thing is, we all think we're experts in people because we see people all the time and we see their body cues and we actually talk to them, but we're not, we're terrible at figuring out when people are lying, when they're telling the truth because we're not calibrated. The difference between actual expertise and this feeling of expertise because oh you know everyone's an expert in people is feedback and actually knowing was i right or was i wrong we never get that in real life and so we're very poorly calibrated and so a lot of times we have really strong gut feelings that are just absolutely wrong and so what i tell anyone is your gut feeling should only ever be your last resort if you have zero data but usually, what you wanted to do is try to get as much data as possible and data that you can be confident in. And so, I try to make, when I'm playing poker, I try to make decisions based on what I've observed. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes I screw up. Sometimes I make gut reads. And usually when that happens, I'm absolutely wrong. And I want to slap myself and say, yep, should have waited, should have observed more, should have gathered more data before I figured out what to do rather than acting impulsively.
0: Maria, so well said. Uh, I've long since eliminated the word luck from my vocabulary because I'm not sure that even exists. I don't know what luck is. What is luck? Is luck different than chance? No, luck is chance. It's just a way that we have
1: a word that we have for chance. I think everyone should have the word luck in their vocabulary because it absolutely exists. There's so much chance in life. This is you know, going back to the beginning of our conversation where you know, you realize that skill is never enough. And I mean that literally never enough. You always have to be lucky. And people just ignore it when it's on their side, when things are going well, you know, we don't wake up every morning and say, you know, I'm very lucky that I'm not sick today, that my body is functioning properly, that everything is going well. I'm lucky that, you know, I went outside and a brick didn't fall on my head. shit happens (laughs) all the time and that's just life it's variance it's chance and chance is going to exist no matter what no matter whether or not we want to have that word in our vocabulary or not and so i just think we need to embrace it and realize that anyone who's successful in life Sure, they've worked hard, but they've also gotten incredibly lucky. And if someone's not successful, that says nothing about how hard they've worked. Um, Maybe they didn't work hard, but maybe they worked even harder than you. They just didn't get the lucky breaks. They weren't in the right place at the right time. They missed out. They were born to the wrong parents. They were born in the wrong place. They were born with the wrong skin color. They were born of the wrong gender. They were born in the wrong country. That is all luck.
0: To our viewers and listeners, you heard it here first, luck exists and shit happens according to Maria. Yeah. Maria, tell us uh, how the year ended. What was your success? What were your failures? What was your uh, your culmination of a poker player and champion like at the end?
1: Yeah, well the year didn't end. I actually ended up spending much more time than I ever thought um, in the world of poker. Um, by the time the year came to an end I still wasn't anywhere near done with my research so I kept going and I ended up doing well um, this isn't really a, a spoiler alert because a simple google search will will show you that I ended up winning a major international championship title um, becoming sponsored by poker stars turning pro and this ended up being multiple years of my life and um, I got I worked hard, but I also got lucky because you can't win tournaments without luck. Um, and it was um, it was quite the journey and became a new career for me. Now these days, you know I'm back to writing, but it was um, it was a phenomenal experience and one that really taught me so much more about myself um, as a person, as a decision maker than I had, ever thought I'd learn from a game like poker. And I highly recommend it. I mean, it's taught me that poker is just a brilliant teaching tool for good decision-making, for emotional management, for self-control, for a lot of the biases that I researched when I was back in academia working in psychology. I had never actually seen how to solve them, how to overcome them, what those solutions would be until poker. So I'm now of the firm mind that we should be teaching poker alongside chess to kids in school um, to teach them how to be better thinkers and better decision makers better critical thinkers i think the world would be a much better place if people knew how to deal with uncertainty knew how to make probabilistic decisions knew how to judge based on the process not the outcome knew all of these powerful insights that poker teaches you through experience
0: So Maria, should Serena Williams be on the lookout for you, Tiger Woods? What's next for you? Who are you going to be trumping with your next project? What's on the horizon for you?
1: No, no. Serena and Tiger can (laughs) can rest easy. They're safe. I have zero other athletic ability. (laughs) I will not be coming for them. And you know what? I think this is it for me for experiential journalism. This was quite the journey. But I think that up next is going to be something totally different and something that I can't even conceive of right now. Just like if you had told me you know, six years ago, hey, Maria, you're going to be a poker player, I would have said, ha, great joke. <laughs> um, I think that's how the best ideas and the best projects work. There's something that the you of the year before or even of yesterday couldn't have possibly known about. So that's to say, I have no idea what my next book is. And that's exciting to me.
0: Maria, such an honor to have you on today. Delighted a brick did not fall on your head. We wish you great uh, health. We wish your family great professional success. The book is absolutely captivating. The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. Maria Konnikova, thank you for joining us. And we'll look to have you back in a couple of years with your next book, if you'll join us.
1: Thank you so much, Scott. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, We'll see you next week with a new guest on Leadership.